insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Hello, everyone. Today is September 20th, 2021 at approximately 3.35 p.m. Washington, D.C. time. And welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection Podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, are Angela Evat. Hi there. Hey, Angela. Steve Brennan. Hi, Deanne. Hey, Steve. And Matt Kepler. Hello. Hey, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, just a note, things are happening quickly right now up on Capitol Hill, so by the time you hear this, things may have changed, but on we go. We have a special guest today, Matt Salo, the Executive Director of the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Hey, Matt, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Deanne. It is a pleasure to be here with you guys. Always a pleasure to speak with you. So National Association of Medicaid Directors, or NAMDI as they are called, represents all 56 of the nation's state and territorial Medicaid directors and provides them with a strong unified voice in national discussions, as well as a locus for technical assistance and best practices. Matt was named Executive Director of NAMDI in February 2011. Matt formerly spent 12 years at the National Governors Association, where he worked on the governor's health care and human services reform agendas. He spent the five years before that as a health policy analyst working for the state Medicaid directors as part of the American Public Human Services Association. Matt has also spent two years as a substitute teacher, God bless you for that, in the public school system in Alexandria, Virginia, and he holds a BA in Eastern Religious Studies from the University of Virginia. Wow. Thanks again for joining us, Matt. This is going to be a great conversation. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. I know I just read your illustrious bio, but you know what really led you to want to work in healthcare policy and brought you to where you are today? Well, I guess that's, a, that's a, it's an interesting question because um, I really kind of just fell backwards into it. Um, as you can see from my you know, previous experience, I didn't train to be in healthcare. I wasn't. I didn't have visions on Medicaid from a young age. Um, I have a BA in Eastern Religious Studies, um, and I had no idea what I thought that was going to prepare me for. Uh, it apparently prepared me for substitute teaching, which I realized pretty quickly was uh, not going to be the career for me. So uh, serendipity had me run into a good friend of mine from high school who was working in some nonprofit in DC doing healthcare. And I said, Hey, you guys pay a salary and do you have health benefits? Are you hiring? I'll take it. Uh, and that's how I ended up uh, in, in Medicaid. And uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure. I, I know that I didn't know the difference between Medicaid and Medicare when I first started. Um, but uh, I pretty quickly and by quickly, I mean about five years, uh, quickly kind of learned what it was, why it was important, and had an incredible experience engaging with, working with, talking to the state Medicaid directors um, all across the country and just seeing their passion, their commitment, uh, and quite frankly, their, their pragmatism and practicality when it comes to, uh, you know, ensuring that you know, where the rubber hits the road is where they are that, you know, they don't, they don't work in an ivory tower. They don't deal in the, the realm of the, what if it's, it's, you know, it's a real world program with a real world budget and real world consequences. And, um, it was incredibly, um, you know, sort of energizing to, to, to work with them. And, uh, 
after about five years in, in that uh, capacity, I um, had spent a lot of time working with the governors and the governor's association because if there's anything the governors care about in the healthcare world, it's Medicaid because it's you know, a good 20% of their, of everybody's budget. And uh, again, kind of kicked it up a notch there and, and spent, um, as you said, about 12 years there. And at about 12 years into it, which was you know, an incredibly rewarding job um, working there, uh, the Medicaid directors, who up until that point had been part of this umbrella group, the American Public Human Services Association, uh, which represented the state Medicaid directors, and then all of the state human services agencies, so SNAP and TANF and child support, child welfare, et cetera, um, they broke off. And they said, we want our own organization dedicated only to state Medicaid directors. And they did that. And at that point, I said, that is exactly what my whole, I didn't know it until now, but that's exactly what my whole career has been leading up to. Uh, and I was uh, fortunate that the board uh, took a look and said, yeah, we think we'll, we'll give this, uh, we'll give this to you and see what you can do with it. Um, and that's been about 11 years since then. And it's been, um, it's been a great, great journey uh, being able to build an organization. We now have 10 people um, that is solely focused on supporting the needs of the Medicaid directors uh, across the country in, uh, in running the most important healthcare program in, in the world. I think that's a fantastic story. Uh, some of the best and brightest people in healthcare, and I include you in that bucket, of course, came into healthcare, not necessarily through the front door, but maybe through a side door or just thought like, you know, I, I wasn't really sure where I was going to end up, but I saw this opportunity and I took it. And I think Nandy is lucky to have you. So thank you for sharing that, that, has, that history with us. Um, okay, uh, I, I wanted to do a quick update of what's going on uh, on the Hill, what's going on with uh, some new things at the CDC, and then come back to you, Matt, and drill down on uh, a few things regarding Medicaid from the federal perspective. Uh, so as I mentioned, this week there is lots going on in Capitol Hill. I don't want to put a pin uh, too solidly in anything, simply because they are battling with a lot of uh, issues that do include health policy, including budget reconciliation, uh, funding the government and making sure that we don't run out of money. And of course, tied to all of that is a slew of health policy points from disagreements on how to do uh, drug pricing to adding benefits to Medicare. Is that going to happen? Is that not? Um, making the Affordable Care Act or ACA subsidies permanent, uh, as of course, due to one of the COVID bills, those subsidies were extended through the end of next year. And now there is concern that we want to make those uh, indeed permanent and not expire at the end of 2022. All of this, of course, in the um, background of budget reconciliation, and there are many, many, many points of disagreements in all of this, but I know it is going to be an exciting time to see what we end up with. Not only, of course, in terms of drug pricing, but one of the things that um, I'll be asking Matt about in a minute is, where do we think we're going to end up on trying to entice the holdout states who have not expanded Medicaid to, of course, expand Medicaid? Um, but first, quick update on what's going on at the CDC in case you missed it. CDC announced a new center, the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, 
This is an organization that will be tasked with combining public health data and disease modeling. Uh, really the idea that as among the many, many lessons we continue to learn throughout, throughout this pandemic, um, CDC really was lacking uh, the capability to track in anywhere near real time or even not so real time uh, data from all these dis disparate health public health systems and be able to put together a uh, rapid response. Uh, and so the idea with the center is to really combine um, more ad adequate access to data, public health emergency responders, uh, accelerating access to and use of that data. And of course, with this administration, the overlying priorities of course include access to, for the underserved and health equity. So more to come on that, but that is an exciting first step for that new center. Also, uh, something new, the Office of Climate Change and Health Equity within HHS. Uh, newly announced, uh, not a lot of funding here, but um, you know, TBD on the future of this agency, but it is, I think, an interesting step as to where this administration is putting their priorities. Uh, this office will have a wide-ranging approach to evaluate the impact that the, quote, warming planet is having on people's health, including initiatives aimed at reducing health providers' carbon emissions, heads up hospital systems, and expanding protections to the most vulnerable. Uh, as I mentioned, they only have three million to start with from Congress to fund it, um, but they will plan to draw on existing resources until then. So there's your news blurb out of Washington, DC. Okay, shifting back to Medicaid, Matt. We know now that with Chiquita Brooks-Lashur as the administrator, um, that we have talked a lot about how do we expand Medicaid. Um, this is not just administration priority, but there's also many in Congress, um, as I'm sure uh, this is something that needless to say, NAMDI is looking at. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how to do that, how to best do it so that those have those states who have already expanded it don't feel like they're going to get um, you know, the short end of the stick on any new funding or new policies. Um, but also, I think, to be quite honest about where we are in the political landscape, you know, the, the race for the midterm elections next year started the day after elections last year, right? And there is this very real sense that the House will not stay in Democratic control next, next year. That's being talked about in some circles as a foregone conclusion, and, and possibly also the slim majority in the Senate may change. So the idea is now is the time to really put those policies into place and, and get this done. Um, you know, this is such a sticky topic and there's so many dimensions to it, but I was hoping you could give us like your take and just give us some of the things that you and your team are thinking about, about what are some of the best ways to really expand Medicaid and all the key considerations that go into it. Sure. So that's a great question and one we could probably spend a couple hours uh, solely devoted to. Um, I might step back and sort of reflect a little bit historically on on this question of you know how do you get from from here to there how do you get um to an increasingly expanded medicaid program and we'll just sort of say that um you know as, as we think about now the 55 or so year history of the program there have been kind of two major avenues that you, that congress uh can can take in order to get uh, more coverage to get expansion, no matter what that looked like. And it's either you force the states to do it, you, you require coverage or coverage expansions uh, to be part of the program. And you can think a lot about how uh, Henry Waxman used the program to increasingly cover uh, pregnant women and, and kids, um, you know, throughout the course of the program. Or you think about dangling a set of incentives 
um, either flexibility or additional money or both um, in front of the states to entice them to take up an option. Uh, and with that, you think about things like the creation of the uh, Children's Health Insurance Program um, that uh, that totally optional, but of course, every state does um, for, for lots of really good reasons. Um, the, the inflection point, I think, on that, that, that kind of changed that, well, here are the two ways to get it, uh, was really the Affordable Care Act and uh, the, the subsequent Supreme Court decision about uh, the Affordable Care Act, where um, you know, the ACA envisioned a mandate on all 50 states, 56 states and territories, to significantly expand Medicaid to every individual, no matter um, their uh, sort of family status or, uh, or, or uh, uh, sort of assets, what have you, um, every individual up to 138% of the population. And that was relatively quickly shot down by the Supreme Court saying, this is a pretty significant change to how the program has worked. And you can't force the states to do, to make a change of that magnitude. So that kind of took, you know, again, if we're talking about what to do about all of those individuals below 138% of poverty, the coverage gap, if you will, um, it looks like, you know, my, my non-legal reading of it is, you know, con Congress can't mandate the states do this. So, you know, it, it opens the question of, well, is the only recourse left, you know, greater and greater incentives, greater and greater, uh, you know, financial uh, or other types of, of incentives to get them there? And you could say, well, yes, that's one way to do it. But I think, you know, one of the things that I've picked up on over the past couple of years is that I think there's a pretty significant uh, sense from people in the administration and in the, the Democratic majority in Congress that, quite frankly, they're tired of waiting for states to get there. And they don't think that there are practical incentives of any um, shape, size, or color that will be effective in getting the remaining states to do the expansion in in, a, in, in their mind a reasonable time frame. Uh, and so now we're starting to see kind of a third path forward. And where does this all end up? You know, get out the old crystal ball because I don't know. But but they're now talking about um, a third way, which is essentially to create a federal fallback to create a, you know, not a mandate that states do, not an option that states do, but just, okay, if states aren't going to do it, then the federal government will do it for them. And I've actually heard this start, it's starting to be called Fedicaid, which I think is, is really kind of funny. Um, but that is kind of shaping up to be a real possibility to try to address that, uh, that coverage gap. Um, so this is obviously a really critical issue for, for all of us, and it's something we're taking a very, very close look at. You know, I would, I would certainly say that, um, you know, addressing the coverage gap and, and trying to ensure that low-income Americans have access to healthcare is a really, really important priority. Um, but I think there's also, you know, the, the real-world 
kind of practical implications that we're also trying to just raise awareness about. So, you know, for example, well, what does this look like? You know, how, who is actually running this? Is this just going to be like, you know, Medicare, but just for, for lower income adults? Um, is this going to look like, you know, which state Medicaid program will it look like? Will it be 50 individual kind of public options, if you will, that the federal government is going to run in, in a bunch of different states? Or is it just going to be one that will look the same in Alabama and Texas and Florida or New York? Um, and then what, what, what will happen, and I think you alluded to this, is, you know, what will be the perspective of states that, um, you know, I think about like a Missouri or an Oklahoma who have very, very recently expanded um, due to ballot initiatives or, or other things. What, what's the impact of this on them or, or other states, really, um, like a New York or, or any of the other 38 states who have done the expansion, did it you know, a decade ago? Um, you know, is there is there something in that new Fedicade that says to them, hey, that's actually a better deal for us and our citizens. And if it's federally funded, we don't have to pay for any of it. That that frees up resources for us to, you know, reinvest that money in the rest of the Medicaid population or what have you. So we're just trying to think through some of those operational things and, you know, I think there's, there's two things I would say before just kind of finishing my, my train of thought here is, you know, when you, when you think historically about um, uh, the kinds of precedents that were set, and again, I mentioned uh, CHIP or the Children's Health Insurance Program, um, you know, there's always this weird kind of incentive where states that had moved forward early, states that had quote unquote done the right thing early, saw Congress come in and create incentives, financial incentives and others, for the rest of the states to do what they did. And there was always, there's always this sense of, well, that's not fair. You know, why don't I get to take advantage of this? You know, why am I being penalized for having done the right thing a long time ago? And, you know, the, the answer at the end of the day is almost always because it's cheaper. The federal government is always going to be worried about costs, is always going to be, you know, if they've got to figure out what the offsets are to something, they want to make the cost as low as possible because the offsets are always painful. Uh, and that's why it's always done. And I, I certainly think the current um, mood of Congress is no different, um, you know, with the discussions around you know, the, the infrastructure package, is it going to be three and a half trillion? Is it going to be one trillion? Is it going to be somewhere in the middle or less? These are all really, really important questions. And so, yeah, they're going to try to figure out how to make it as cheap as possible. And that's going to create, you know, pieces there that say to states, hey, are we at a disadvantage here? And I think that's the thing that we're going to be looking out for to say, you know, can we protect or can we help those states to say, you know, is there a way that we can be advantaged here as well? But it's a very, very complicated conversation, as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, it, it is. And I appreciate the term Fedicaid. I had not heard that before. 
Um, but you know, if you think about it, we've really been all over the map with looking at Medicaid funding over the last few decades, starting out from popularizing block grants during, um, you know, when Newt Gingrich was majority leader of the House back in the 90s to then, of course, talking about work requirements in the previous administration. And now with the um, ramifications of the pandemic, looking at the fact that people who are uninsured and during a pandemic or during any kind of infectious disease or other type of just terrible strain on the healthcare system really can become a drain. It's a public health issue as much as it is an insurance coverage issue. Um, I've also heard some Hill staff in leadership positions talking about the idea of this idea of, well, why don't we just expand the ACA exchanges and throw a bunch of Medicaid recipients into that? Why that's not always the best idea either because the Medicaid population has special needs um, you know, you're dealing with different demographics. As you mentioned, what works in New York will not work in Oklahoma. If you've met one Medicaid program, I think you've met one Medicaid program. Um, and so trying to put folks into what really was designed as a commercial insurance package for folks on the individual marketplace is not always the best fit for a Medicaid population. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's, uh, there's a couple of things there that are, that are really important. You know, you know, one of which is the incredible value that we saw Medicaid bringing to, to the country <clears throat> in its role as the first responder uh, to, to a major, you know, a pandemic. Uh, you know, we've seen Medicaid in its role as first responder with, with hurricanes, with floods, with things like 9-11, stepping in and being able to absorb and to take care of people at their most vulnerable and providing them the health and the social, behavioral and other types of care uh, and services and supports that they need. An absolutely un, you know, unsung, undersung, underappreciated role that Medicaid has played. And, uh, and we've actually focused a fair amount on that over the past year or so in saying, <clears throat> you know, where, where is, or where has Medicaid traditionally played a really significant part of the overall healthcare system? And to what extent has that role been, you know, under siege or under threat because of the pandemic. And uh, we actually uh, created this project called Medicaid Forward. And we looked at three areas where, where Medicaid pre-pandemic had an oversized role in the healthcare system and how the pandemic challenged that and really is a way for us to think about how do we move forward from here? How do we strengthen and reinvigorate those pillars of the healthcare system such that the next time that Medicaid is called to be a, a first responder again, um, that it, it's got the support, it's got the strength, uh, it's got the capacity to do that. And just you know, real briefly, we did that in, in three areas, behavioral health, uh, because Medicaid is the largest provider of behavioral health services in this country. Uh, and we've certainly seen um, you know, substance use issues, mental health challenges for a lot of people in this country, um, definitely at, the, at greater risk during the pandemic. Uh, the second is children's health. You know, Medicaid covers 40% of the kids in this country and 50% of the births. And clearly, you know, what we've seen has been, you know, I've got four kids. I know how hard it is to try, for kids to try to live through a pandemic where their social structures of school have been thrown completely out of whack. 
you know, are they going to spend the next two weeks in quarantine because somebody got uh, the pandemic uh, in their class or God forbid, you know, you know, kids who have been orphaned because their parents have both died. I mean, this is this is a really, really significant thing that we need to be thinking more about. And then the final piece is long term care, which, you know, Medicaid is has been for a very, very long time in this country, the long term care program. And um, you know the, the pandemic has has certainly shown um, how how difficult that can be to deal with when you're dealing with a pandemic because you know that's where the mortality happened and it was in nursing homes and and how do we ensure that uh, that uh, the the frailest um, Americans are are safe um, whether that's in an institution or increasingly in Medicaid. In, in their homes or in community-based settings. So it's really, really important, I think, to just step back and sort of acknowledge the incredibly valuable role that Medicaid has played historically, but also specifically through the past 16 months and moving forward uh, in the pandemic. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. Those are excellent points, and I appreciate you you painting that picture. Uh, I feel like the 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 future of the program is really on this, this very important point. Uh, coming through this pandemic and moving forward. So, you know, more to come, of course, from the federal perspective. Uh, I want to turn it over now to the state panel, Angela, Steve, and uh, Matt, and kind of get into some of the more granular state issues that they've been tracking. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Great conversation, Matt. Um, so I'm sure Medicaid directors are, you know, wearing multiple hats. They're looking at the federal side, but they're also looking at uh what other states are doing, what is happening internally. So some of the issues that we have been following, uh, we're going to want to give an update to our audience, but um, we'll turn back to you, Matt, with some questions, uh, how these issues relate to particular Medicaid agencies. So let's first sort of set the stage. Uh, where are we in state legislative sessions? Um most state sessions um, began in January, um, and most of them have adjourned. Um, however, we've seen a number of states hold special sessions, one, two, three, or more special sessions. And these are mostly focuses on, on budgets and spending of federal COVID relief funds. And I'm sure folks have heard um, that redistricting is happening, so we're seeing sessions there. Um, and a handful of states will be continuing through the end of the year. Um, so let's focus a little bit on um, the issue around data privacy and security that we've been following. For uh, the 2021 session, we saw over 350 bills introduced addressing some form of data privacy and security. In particular, states have been focusing on broad data privacy bills, and these are bills that are really aimed at increasing consumers' rights to control over their information or their data generally, and these could include a a right to opt out of the collection of their data by certain entities. 
Um, well, what happened in states this year, we saw two new uh, broad data privacy bills become law, and that was in Virginia and Colorado. Uh, both enacted similar bills, and uh, in fact, Virginia actually has started already conversations around implementing of their new law through the regulation. On the the not passed side, uh, we saw states that continue to introduce but haven't made it to the finish line. In Washington, New York um, took another step at it, but it just didn't happen this year. Um, but we saw a lot of new states pop up with uh, data privacy bills in Florida uh, and others, and some still at play uh, for this session. Angela, um, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to do a call out um, for any Hill staff listening to that. I would just want to call out that we've had over 350 bills on privacy in the states this year. Just mentioning it. Okay. Thanks, Angela. Yeah, definitely a busy, busy year. Um, and this is data privacy and security. Um, but with some of the new things that we saw on the data privacy front um, was specific COVID data privacy issues, which... Um, kind of not really surprising, surprising, but these states were maybe trying to tackle the broad data privacy issue, but then focused on COVID. Um, and Oregon actually enacted um, their law on COVID data privacy. And this is, you know, increasing protections uh, and privacy for COVID data health uh, collected usually by third parties that are not those healthcare facilities like your provider or a hospital or pharmacy. Um, Washington did pass their uh, legislation on COVID data privacy, but ultimately it was vetoed by the governor um, who supported the goal of the bill, but really felt that the provisions were too broad and could uh, limit certain uh, vaccination efforts. Um, so that was on the data privacy side. Uh, we continue to see data security legislation, um, about over 130 bills, a subset of those 350. And some themes around uh, the data security front, we're seeing states look at amending their, their current state data privacy laws, really expanding the types of data or types of personal information required to be kept secure um, or that must be reported if breached or provided notice. Um, we saw some new uh, laws uh, being enacted in Texas and Connecticut on this front. And then another theme is, you know, bills that were establishing commissions or advisory groups to recommend standards for cybersecurity data collection, um, really aiming at state agencies or private businesses broadly. Um, and we saw bills being enacted in, in Texas um, requiring things like a, a vendor that's contracting with the state that provides cloud computing services has to meet certain risk assessment requirements. And uh, Maine also has uh, a, a similar bill. Um, on the security front, what we can expect next year, you know, I really don't see much more happening um, on the security front given the end of session. We'll likely see similar bills next uh, session, particularly as data sharing and breaches uh, continue to be concerned at the state level. On the privacy front, um, we still have pending legislation in Ohio and New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, and we'll likely see bills carried over uh, into the next session, session in uh, states like Texas and New York. Um, but turning back to you, Matt, um, you know, many state Medicaid programs 
are faced with significant data system projects. Um, these are usually to meet administrative needs uh, within the agency, um, working with third parties, and also meeting the uh, new federal requirements on data collection and reporting. Um, how are Medicaid agencies thinking of data privacy and security considering the growing number of uh, data breaches across various industries? sectors? Well, it's a great question, and it's a it's a tough situation. Um, and um, I would kind of frame it up as I think this is a, one of those great examples where you really have to think about all of the trade offs that come when you're trying to craft good public policy. And I, I bet there's a bunch of stuff that we're going to talk about, and stuff we've already talked about, that talk about some of those trade offs. But here. Um, we've got what are seemingly competing desires from kind of a design perspective of what do you want out of data collection? And you're right, you absolutely want to prioritize privacy and security, uh, the extent to which an individual or a, you know, a, a larger association of, you know, or a company or whatever, the extent to which their own private information, their health information or any type of information is vulnerable to hackers or to outside individuals, that creates an enormous risk, um, obviously not only to the individual, but to the faith in government and to the faith in systems writ large. Uh, if we can't protect those things, um, then you know, are we just throwing you to the wolves? Are we throwing your bank account to the wind? You know, if we can't do that, that's a real problem. Yet you've got to balance that with these increasing demands and increasing desires for more transparency, for more data collection, for more information to get out there. And we spent a lot of time just on one particular example, we spent a lot of time over the past 16 months thinking about the impact of the pandemic and um, the infections and mortality and hospitalizations, as well as vaccinations and, and everything else that's come since then. And, you know, folks in the federal government, folks in the public health world, people just in general have really legitimate questions like, well, you know, how many people have it? How many people are dying? How many people are vaccinated? And can you break that out by really important categories like, what is the race or ethnicity of the people who have it? You know, we are trying to lean in in a really significant way into understanding what some of the racial and ethnic disparities are inherent in the healthcare system and, and beyond. And we can't really fix anything uh, until we really know what the problem is. And we're not going to know what the problem is until we start collecting a lot more data. But, you know, so that gets us back to the beginning of how do we collect more and more and more data about more and more and more people without, you know, either A, making that data actually at risk, or B, making people think that their, their privacy uh, is being jeopardized. And that is a, that there is not an easy answer to that. This is a, we are in the messy middle of all of this, and I, I suspect that we are going to be kind of like muddling forward and trying to figure that out for uh, uh, for quite some time. I'm afraid. Yeah, absolutely, and I think 
that sort of debate around how do you balance the value with the risk um, is is definitely happening states when they think about these policies. Um, and I think folks on both sides of the issue, those who want you know increased privacy uh, uh, protections, um, and those you know who who want the value, I think. Most of them on the same are on the same page. Um, they understand the value of this this data. Um, I think it's sort of the uh, the devils in the details and the weeds of you know how to make that information transparent to individuals about their data, uh, when it's proper or appropriate uh, to share where things are de-identified, and and all of those details are yet to be uh, or continue to be hashed out at the state level for sure. Um, well, great. Um, I'll now want to turn it over to my colleague, Steve, um, to go over a couple of issues that he is looking at and uh, chat with Matt. Great. Thank you, Angela. So, Matt, I think uh, the, the theme I want to touch on, and you, you've actually touched on it quite a bit already, is the notion of experimentation and, um, and whether it's in the Medicaid program or it's state healthcare programs in general. And one issue, policy issue that we've been watching closely, and I think a lot of states have been, is the, is the creation of the public option model. Uh, we now have three states, Washington, Colorado, and Nevada, that have public options. Washington was the pioneer and, um, and had to make some changes to make it uh, a more affordable for for enrollees and also engage the providers to participate so they've made some changes and hopefully we'll see where that goes colorado is, is and and nevada are really using it as a government uh, stronger government lever to try to control costs and improve access and coverage uh, and so thinking about these two models or these these three models and then potentially more uh coming online uh, over over the next five to ten years is as uh, as it you know gets uh, tweaked and and experimented with, how do you see that as playing into this this broader notion of experimentation at the state level? We've seen a lot of experimentation at the state level with Medicaid programs over the last ten or more years, especially with the ACA opening up that that opportunity that avenue to do so. Uh, what are the biggest barriers that you see um, thinking about the complexity of demographics, the uh, the huge uh, issue around long-term care and, and the senior component of Medicaid. Um, you know, how, what are the big barriers you see that, that states are, are, are going to, or are wrestling with, or are going to have to wrestle with in the next few years to really try to move the needle in terms of innovation? Yeah, so um, it's a big question. I, I would say that you know, nothing really defines Medicaid more than the fact that it is so uh, defined by innovation by experimentation and by design it is a different program in every one of the 56 states and territories um, and within any given state for different populations for you know healthy adults for pregnant women and kids for frail seniors it is different in any given state so there's an enormous amount of complexity and innovation and difference um, just standard um, and I, you know, there's been an enormous amount of innovation in delivery system reform and payment reform for decades, and it well, it well precedes uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, and uh, you know, the, I think we really we've really seen moving forward. You know, the state Medicaid programs moving the healthcare system forward in very, very significant ways across all of these areas. And these are all very, very exciting. 
I think the downside though is that there's two things. One is that you know state government apparatus is is limited in bandwidth. You know, there there isn't the infinite capacity to be able to test and to model and to demonstrate and to evaluate all of the potential reforms or tweaks or changes that can happen. So by nature, we've got to kind of think about, well, what do we have the most control over? What do we think is going to have the greatest amount of success? And let's, you know, focus our energy on that. And that's going to leave a whole lot of kind of reforms out there of, it'd be great to try all of those, but we don't have the bandwidth to try all of them. There's something we call a Medicaid uh, opportunity fatigue, where there's just so many different things that the state Medicaid program could do to, to fix or improve or, or innovate, but you just can't do them all. Um, the other challenge, though, is, okay, well, what happens if, you're succe- if we're successful and all of these flowers are blooming? The real question is, how do we take those to scale? Because I think what we don't want is to sort of say, hey, we had this innovation and it worked. What do we do? Well, let's put it in a nice little display and put it in a museum somewhere and congratulate ourselves on how nice that effort was. What you really want to do is figure out what of these things worked and how do we infuse that into the DNA of the healthcare system writ large. And quite frankly, that in, that's going to involve, you know, just, you know, injecting that into Medicare, you know, Medicare, which tends to act as a single entity across the whole country. So that's the kind of the, the difficult dynamic there. Um, and, and, you know, and honestly, when at the state Medicaid director level, that's where most of the energy is around demonstrations, around innovation. Um, I think because what you, you, you're getting at a little bit in your question is, you know, well, how actually are we thinking about coverage? How are we thinking about expanding coverage, whether it's public options or other types of things? And I think on some level, um, some of those questions, you know, do we expand coverage? That is a political level question that is quite frankly above the pay grade of, of, of most Medicaid directors. Uh, so it's not, it's not, you know, the directors who are saying, well, we're going to go, you know, create a public option and we're going to expand coverage this way. That's a decision that happens at the gubernatorial and the state legislative level. Our folks are mostly like, all right, you want us to get there? All right, we're going to get there. And here's how we figure out how do we get there. Um, but I, I do think that to your question, you know, it's, you know, we, you know, the ACA has been around for a decade or so and everyone, you know, a decade ago, people were saying, Hey, what do you think about these public options? And don't you think a whole bunch of states are going to take, take them up? And, um, 10 years later, we've got three. Um, so I, you know, the, the progress on that is slow and they're difficult. These are, these are big undertakings. These are, these are not things that you just kind of whip up on the back of a cocktail napkin. This is, this is, this is hard, hard work. Terrific. Thanks, Matt. Um, I'll kick it over to our, uh, the other Matt on the, on the podcast, Matt Kepler. Um, and, and you have a question for Matt as well. Yeah, I um I was going to give a bit of an update first on our um, COVID vaccines, and then um, you know we'll circle back with you, Matt, here in just a second. But at the state level, what we've been seeing is just such a strong surge of activity in the spring and the summer um, around prohibiting um, vaccine credentials. 
And that activity has cooled off as the weather will begin to cool off as we're heading into the fall, but it's heated up in areas related to vaccine mandates, especially in certain sectors related to the state and local governments, healthcare settings, and schools. Um, while the president at the federal level has just recently offered his path out of the pandemic with his own set of vaccine mandates um, related to employers with 100 plus employees, um, federal workers, and also healthcare workers under their jurisdiction. So there's still quite a bit of activity at the state level with bills and governor's orders. Um, there's 92 bills um, in 31 states, 21 of those have already been enacted into law and 14 um, our governor's orders um, have also been enacted into law. So we expect more activity to continue into 2022. Um, in the meantime, what states are doing is they're offering um, vaccine credential apps so people can store their records or verify their status. And there have been just a host of solutions that have been offered depending on the various states. And that has definitely been something that we've been tracking at a close level. And of course, there's been recent statements even by the governors about um, their positioning on booster shots um, related to either individuals that are 65 plus or um, what we expect could be a statement uh, down the road about individuals that are younger than that as well. So what we think could be coming next would be, a vac you know, the federal vaccine mandate will play out in the courts. We expect that there will be some role um, of booster shots, but we don't quite know how that's going to be for the general population. Um, you know, more strains of the virus means more time for legislation. Um, a lot of the states that were filing legislation or having orders were not in session at the time. So it's certainly uh, very plausible that they could come back and have more bills relating on that, especially in states that uh, have Republican governors. Um, there also um, will be a focus, as was mentioned earlier, as they're looking at redistricting, there's always a focus on election or re-election, which can sometimes um, cause polarized stances on the issues that may be based on popularized constituent views. Um, and we also think we could see some movement on legislation pertaining to uh, falsification or, uh, you know, alteration of vaccine credentials like there was um, in New York and New Jersey. So Matt, we kind of wanted to check with you and just see, uh, you mentioned um, the Medicaid forward program, but just wanted to see if there's anything else as it relates to COVID that you saw that Medicaid agencies would be facing, you know, on the public health front um, in the in the coming year. Yeah, I mean, I think what, um, what the pandemic has really showed us is the incredible value of just public health as a concept, public health as an actual infrastructure, um, and uh, the needs for Medicaid as a, you know, multifaceted, multivariable insurance, you know, health wellness program to be able to connect in real ways at the state level as well at the national level with, with public health. Um, and, you know, in, ensuring that communication is happening between the two so that we know who, um, you know, who is vaccinated or who needs to be um, and, and where they are and how to get to them. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're also, you know, trying to figure out, um, <clears throat> you know, before we even get the boosters, um, we need to figure out how to actually get you know, more people in this country, Medicaid beneficiaries included, 
the actual shots in their arms. And, you know, when dealing with whether it's outright vaccine uh, resistance, which is going to be a very, very difficult dynamic to deal with, or whether it's a more nuanced and complicated vaccine hesitancy, which perhaps can be overcome with a trusted source or or better information or something. Trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we get people to yes? And, you know, I think it's probably pretty clear that, you know, a, a, a letter in the mail from the state government isn't going to move the needle for anybody, no pun intended. Um, you know, a letter from their managed care organization probably isn't going to move the needle either. Um, but what will? And the answer is going to be you, you drill down and figure out where the trusted sources are. Is it a, you know, a key physician or other healthcare practitioner? Uh, that this individual or a community trusts and relies on, or is it of some other community voice? You know, is it a religious leader? Is it a community leader? Is it someone else who is sort of like not the traditional person you think about when you, you know, go to do you know, vaccine encouragement? Being able to get to those individuals and say, hey, how can we work together to try to, you know, um, enhance, increase the spread of um, actually getting people vaccinated, because that's what we're going to need to do if we want to put any of this behind us. Absolutely. A lot of work ahead, and I really appreciate you running through that with us, Matt. Um, I wanted to also touch on another area related to um, telehealth, specifically related to Medicaid. I guess I should begin with saying happy telehealth awareness week. And um, also, when we went back and looked at the number of bills, we found that there were over a thousand telehealth bills um, that had been filed in all 50 states and that each of the 50 states, including D.C. and Puerto Rico, had implemented some form of telehealth policy change during the pandemic. So I think we, we know there were a lot of changes and a lot of the states were looking at making these temporary COVID flexibilities and telehealth permanent. Um, we wanted to check with you, Matt, where do you think that the states will be headed in 2022 and where do you think they need to be headed if, if it's not the direction that they should go? Yes, I mean, on some level, I think about telehealth the way I, I think about um, telework uh, in the sense that are we ever going to go back completely to the way it was pre-pandemic? No, I don't think so. Um, but all of the flexibilities and all of the emergency types of, of situations that we had to use work from home or telehealth to get us through the pandemic, critically important. Um, similarly, I don't think we're going to keep, keep where we were either. We're gonna figure out some kind of new normal in between the two. And for, for telehealth, Medicaid's challenge is again, I'm gonna keep coming back to this word, trade-offs. Trying to figure out what are the trade-offs between Increased access, which is undeniably what it's going to provide, um, but also trying to balance uh, other things like program integrity. You know, how are you ensuring that dollars are being spent appropriately? Um, if it's you know, or you know, um, how are you maximizing engaging with the healthcare providers? If it's you know an in-person visit versus a Zoom visit versus a purely telephonic visit? 
Are they all the same? Are they all equally as beneficial? Are there differences? Should you pay differently based on those? There's a whole lot of questions there that, we're, that we've got to address before we figure out what the new normal is. But the last thing that I would say that I think is really, really important, and that kind of comes back to this, this theme, this, this thread of Medicaid being much more purposeful and, and thoughtful about what are we doing to improve or you know, remediate or, or address racial and ethnic disparities and inequities in healthcare. And through the telehealth lens, it's if what we're doing is offering up a promise of a new way of engaging with the healthcare sector that is completely unavailable to low-income families because they don't have data plans that can allow for you know, multiple hours of Zooming with, with their physician, um, or whether they have, don't have access to any kind of reliable you know, Wi-Fi or broadband or anything else. It's, those, it's kind of a 21st century infrastructure of its, in itself to say, we have got to make sure that if this is going to be the way or a new part of the answer moving forward, that we're not leaving our, the populations that we care about the most behind. So we've got to figure out how do we ensure to the extent that telehealth is going to be part of the future, that the beneficiaries that we serve have access to adequate infrastructure to, to be able to take advantage of. And I know a lot of people have said, well, how is that different than, you know, a physical uh, office visit because transportation is so difficult. And I would say, you're right. And I think, and we failed. We failed as a society to figure out how do we provide an adequate transportation infrastructure for low-income families to access the right care at the right time. That doesn't mean we can just, we can also fail them when it comes to this new mode. So that's, that's our challenge. Great, thank you for that, Matt. And Matt, thanks for being on the show with us today. I have really appreciated your insights. And of course, I always learn something from speaking with you. So I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm sure we could have talked for hours more, but uh, it was good to talk to you all. And um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Yes, and uh, I hope we will be able to touch base after your big conference in November. Uh, we'll plug there for your in upcoming annual conference. Uh, and whatever comes out of Congress this time around, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Medicaid policy. So more to come. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening today. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kasim. I hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.